Hey everyone, my name is Michael Kaiser. And I'm John Wilson. And welcome to another special episode of Make Ours Marvel that we call Not Comics. This is our 11th Not Comics special where we take some time away from the Silver Age shenanigans and focus on more modern incarnations of our favorite Marvel madmen. And uh, this particular episode is is planned as far as timing goes because on your feed right now is our coverage of the first issue of Daredevil. So today we're talking about Daredevil. That'd have been funny if you said Fantastic Four. Right. But we already did yeah. that one. Yeah, we did that one already. <laughs> but speaking of Fantastic Four, we uh, we reached back into the into the time vaults and grabbed our co-host from that episode. So or our guest, I guess, is a more technically precise term. So welcoming back to the show again to talk with us about some Marvel films, we have Mr. Blaine Dowler. Welcome back, Blaine. Oh, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. Hello, Blaine. And also, just because sometimes three is not enough, we decided to bring in one of my good friends for like early days in my comics podcasting world. Um, we used to do Superman show together. We briefly did an X-Men show together. Um, we've done some Wonder Woman talk. We've done all sorts of stuff. Dave Weeder, how you doing, buddy? Oh, I can't complain. Uh, you, you know, call me Dave. Like you, 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 I don't know what to do with my hands now because you took away my entrance music. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, you <laughs> know okay. what you guys talked about at least for five seconds once. Captain America. Captain oh, America. Yeah, so that, that binds all three, all three of, us. of us together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, we all three fun. of us. One more. Yeah. Yeah, and I was actually doing some math on this this morning. By my count, if you've listened to all the podcasts we put out. This will be the 24th time you've heard both my thoughts and Dave's in the same podcast. The fourth time you've heard both of our voices in the same podcast. But only the first time we've actually been part of the same verbal conversation at the same time. I was thinking about that today as well. That Blaine has been on three episodes of Dave's Daredevil podcast in which I introduced and handed off to him. But we've never had a back and forth yet. What? How does that work? (laughs) Blaine was just a guest host on that one. So I... Yeah, he just took over the episode and oh, saved two weeks. Yep. Gotcha. Oh, that was when we, you were doing the um, the Golden Age Daredevil, right, Blaine? Uh, yeah, I did <laughs> one fill-in with the Golden Age Daredevil, one with the saga of the Stuntmaster, and I was one of the people that Dave reached out to for the 50th, anniversary, or 50th episode special, going through my favorite issues of Daredevil over 50 years, and apparently I was the only one who got back to him because I was the only one on that episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a it was a, a hiatus that happened after that, so that episode yeah. got jacked up. But I wasn't going to waste good audio. Well, we are here to talk about the Daredevil film from two thousand three, or should I more precisely say the Daredevil films from two thousand three? Because there are two different versions of this film that are different enough that you could almost consider them two different films. Um, so we were talking about both the theatrical and director's cut releases of Daredevil. And I've mentioned this online a couple of times, and I've had several people say, there's a director's cut? Yeah. And evidently there is. How did, uh, when did y'all find out there was a director's cut? Was it when it first came out or what? I've I been, a, oh, sorry. Dave, you first. I found out ahead of the release. I saw the solicitation, so I got it the day it hit shelves. I also picked up the release date because I've been writing a weekly column on which DVDs and Blu-rays are coming out since Blu-rays were not a thing and it was DVDs and VHS tapes. 
So I knew it was coming a couple months in advance. Mike, had you I, seen the Dragon's I, Dead I, Cut? I had never seen it until for this show. Um, I still haven't seen it because I don't prep for this show. No, I've seen it for this show, but uh, 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 I don't have any memory of like discovering it. Although I didn't seem particularly surprised when you told me there was one. So maybe I just knew, but I don't remember knowing. I had only seen Daredevil once before getting ready for this episode. And I knew that I had seen it at home. I didn't go see it in the theaters. I knew I had seen it with my brother. I did not realize that there had been two cuts of the film, or at least I don't remember knowing that. But turns out the one that I saw years ago was the director's cut. Uh And I knew that because when I watched the original cut first to get ready for this, I'm like, why isn't he waking up in the in the sensory suppression tank. He doesn't wake up in that in the regular cut of the film. He goes to bed in it later, but he doesn't wake up in it. So I was very confused because that was like a vivid memory of like the idea that he would go to bed each night in a tank of water to suppress his hearing and everything. Mm-hmm. So when he wakes up in that in the morning, it's like, oh, that makes so much sense. That's so cool. It's Daredevil. Yeah. I, I don't know. I never saw it. Um, oddly, this movie, I've been trying to think like I have no memory of even – seen it for the first time i know i've seen it multiple times i remember having i remember thoughts about like people discussing it before it came out on forums and stuff but i don't know if i saw it in the theater i don't know if i waited till you know dvd or whatever it was in 2003 yeah it's weird it's kind of just uh absent from my brain blaine where were you when this movie came out where was your uh, your comics and your daredevil fandom uh at this point i had recently gotten back into collecting comics it was actually the the first Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie that kicked that off. And I had basically discovered Daredevil the first time. Because when I collected comics in junior high and high school, I didn't read any of them. So I was coming in having... Well, I, even then, I, most of the Daredevil I read was coming in off the, the 25 cent issue. So I'd have to really dig to find out if I'd even read it at that point. Or if I was just coming in with sort of knowledge of his guest appearances in in other titles and that one issue I had where he fought the son of Mephisto. So I know I was there opening night for it, but I'd have to check to see when that nine cent issue came out. I think it was actually later. It would have been later that year that the nine cent issue came out. I think maybe they capitalize on the people watching the movie. Yeah. It would have been right around that, that same time because that's when they had the 25 cent issue of Namor, the nine cent issue of fantastic four. Uh, one of those three promotional price Issues was really good, but we could talk about the, <laughs> two of those were really good. One was not, but Dave, that's a long ways off because that character doesn't have a movie yet. <laughs> Dave, how about you? Where were you when this movie came out? Where was your Where was your Daredevil fandom? Uh, well, it was in high step. Uh, I'd gotten back in with the the release of the Kevin Smith run, Guardian Devil. I was a little bit behind, so I was going through the David Mack stuff, but um, I watched the development of this movie from the get-go. If there was anything that came out, I was looking at comingsoon.net or whatever website had it. First uh, shot of the costume, um, everything. So m- first morning of that Friday, or first thing in the morning that Friday that it was released, I was in the theater, dragging my friend with them with me, and then again on Sunday. So twice in the opening weekend. And do you remember we were enjoying it at the time? Yes. We both, I mean, everybody, I saw it with, the same friend went back with me on Sunday and still enjoyed it, and we brought another one who also enjoyed it. So we were all on board with that movie. So we're critics, if anybody wants to search out. The critics were pr- pretty warmly reviewing it. Please Does anybody else remember their first reactions to the film? Uh, yeah, I I also enjoyed it. And I don't have to depend on memory, because I wrote a review. 
which I can Google while we hear Mike's first reaction. Uh, my first reaction is kind of the same as my current reaction in that I like it. Um, I think the overall plot is pretty good. I think it's a good intro to Daredevil for people who don't know who Daredevil was, which was probably a thing. You know, this is pre-Netflix uh, Daredevil, of course, or MCU or any of that stuff. So making a Daredevil movie, I remember that just being pretty dang special to begin with. Because like, you could see making a Spider-Man movie, sure. But now they're making Daredevil. It's like, well, that's kind of exciting. Um, um, I don't know. It Like, it kind of suffers from... The same thing a lot of these early comic book movies suffered from, like any anything pre or post-1989, essentially, early 2000s, Spider-Man, X-Men, all that. It's like they really want to make a comic booky movie. And it just kind of like in some ways it's kind of annoying because they have to do like these really colorful fake alleyway sets and and fancy music and the titles have to catch on fire and um, stuff like that. I can't just low-key it at all. And he's like an urban hero, so they really could have low-keyed it a little bit. But that said, I do think overall it's pretty entertaining. Um, not perfect, but I I enjoyed it then. I enjoy it now. Yeah, the um, the Spider-Man film was out by this time. We had two X-Men films. Actually, X2 came out the same year. I don't remember <laughs> which one exactly came out before the other one. but um, um, Daredevil I, came out Valentine's Day, so this would have been first. Okay. Yeah. So it's like we're in this like resurgence of superhero films. And yeah, I, I agree, Mike. They, there is a sort of stylized feel of early 2000s, late 90s superhero films. But um, but yeah, like I said, I didn't see this one in the theater. I saw it at home and I saw it with my brother. And it was, I mean, it was what we expected from Daredevil. This might have been my first Electra story. Because hmm. I never I'm read sorry. Daredevil or Electra back whenever that was <laughs> happening. I still have never read the original Frank Miller Electra saga, so I guess Well you know, you'll get there. I will mm-hmm. in your in your quest to read every comic book ever published, at some point, I imagine one of your one of your reading read throughs will get there. Or I will die trying, one or the other. We'll get there, you know, when we're 150. <laughs> um, okay. Well, I think we're ready to dive into the film. Say again? Nothing. Go ahead. I think uh, before we dive into the film, um, Blaine, you said you had some information about how we got to the fact that there were two cuts. Uh, yeah, and even how this came to be Mark Stephen Johnson's project, how it all happened. Because this, the, the story of this movie really starts in the early 90s when Ron Perlman was the owner of Marvel. And Ron Perlman is by and large the reason Marvel filed for bankruptcy protection in 1997. He liked to overextend things, and his attitude toward comics was that there were two types of people buying them. There were the young kids who were the ones actually reading the stories, and then there were adults who didn't care about the stories, and they were just putting them in bags and boards to appreciate, so he did all the multiple covers and really drove the speculator market that was such a huge problem for comics in the 90s. And while that was happening, Mark Stephen Johnson was a huge Daredevil fan who kept showing up at the Marvel offices saying, I want to make a movie. But at the time, Perlman was only interested in making cartoons because he figured these people are kids. They're not going to need live action. We tried live action once before. It was called Howard the Duck. We're not doing that again. And Mark Stephen Johnson wasn't taking no for an answer. He'd written Grumpy Old Men, which was a huge success. So he came back again and came back again to the point that Perlman actually had a restraining order taken out against him so that Johnson could not set foot on Marvel property. Then... Perlman sold the company when it was overextended, bailed Avia Rad, who owned Toy Biz, the licensing company that had the Marvel Comics toy license, recognized that if Marvel went under, his toy company was going with it. 
and he managed to successfully buy Marvel, in spite of a number of other people competing for it. And his major push was to get Marvel on the big screen. So first, Blade came out and exceeded expectations, but didn't really set the world on fire. Then we had the first X-Men movie, we had a Spider-Man movie, they were actively looking for people to adapt these properties. At this point, Mark Stephen Johnson had also directed Simon Birch, which was his first directorial project. So Avia Rad arranged to meet with him to talk about Daredevil, also because in a recent interview with superheroes coming up, somebody had asked Ben Affleck, if offered, would you play a superhero? And he said, probably not. He wasn't interested in going through spandex. The only character he might make that exception for was Daredevil. And Ben Affleck was a bankable star at the time. So Villarad said, okay, if we can get Ben Affleck and we've got a guy who wants to write and direct, that would mean he gets paid more than any writer or director, but less than both combined. This is the, the right time and the right combination of people to make it happen. So he reached out to Mark Steven Johnson. They met off the Marvel property because the restraining order was still in effect. And they worked out the deal to make the movie happen. And Mark Steven Johnson had scripts that, if you hear him talk about it on the director commentary for everything else that they had in it, if they had given him an unlimited budget and unlimited schedule and he filmed his first draft of the script, we probably would have been looking at a three-hour movie. But one of the, the caveats that the studio had for him was that the final product had to be under 100 minutes. Because they were looking at how much money they invested in it. It was still kind of an unproven property. They weren't sure if X-Men was a fluke or not. But at the time, the major multiplexes would squeeze in one more showing each day on opening weekend when the studio gets a bigger cut of the box office dollar if the runtime was 100 minutes or less. So that was the mandate Mark Steven Johnson had. So he filmed as much of the movie he really wanted to make as he could, given the time and budget, but then had to edit it down to under the 100-minute mark, as opposed to the director's cut we've got, which is, what, two hours and 13 minutes and some odd seconds? So, mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's weird by modern standards think of, uh, you know, the 100-minute target because, I mean, films are so rarely under two hours anymore. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that is just how many screens they've gotten in. Some of that is because the studios are trying to recoup a certain amount of money. So as they've shifted from Mylar and physical print films to digital distribution – They've also greatly expanded the number of screens they're on. I worked at a theater in the 90s when Batman Forever made the record for being on more screens than any other movie had up to date. And that record was like 3,800 screens opening weekend. And by the time we got to digital, and there's movies that open now on 15,000 screens. Wow. So they get way more opening weekend because everyone who really wants to see that movie has the chance to see it opening weekend. Mm-hmm. that sellouts are not the thing that they used to be. There's still sometimes a problem, though. <laughs> just yeah. had a problem just this last weekend trying to take my son to see Alita Battle Angel, and yeah, the, there were no seats in the theater. But that's a story for another time. Go see Alita Battle Angel. It's pretty fantastic. Um, yeah. All right. Well, that does set us up nicely. What we're going to do as we go through here is I think we're going to take kind of a holistic approach to the film. And talk about the overall plot of the film, you know, as it pertains to the different topics. But then when it branches, when it bifurcates between the two different versions, we can bring that up as we go. Because, I mean, Daredevil is kind of unique, or at least less common, in that the director's cut makes some pretty significant changes, not just additions to the film. (laughs) 
And so we'll talk about those as they come up. But the majority of the film is only mildly, minorly altered. So we'll, we'll just kind of take it as it comes. Um, I guess let's start at the beginning. What did y'all think of Daredevil being played by Ben Affleck? Ooh, that's the big question, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> he wasn't so ben Affleck my first choice. was his biggest claim to fame? The Good Will Hunting? Armageddon. Uh, well, and definitely yeah. Good Will Hunting was his successful movie in terms of getting an Oscar and stuff, but... Yeah. Also, Mall yeah, Rats. For, let's not forget. Yeah, Armageddon uh, was the big but, one. Yeah, Dave, Dave's right that Armageddon was the yeah. the big ticket item as far as the mass audience was concerned. Okay, so let's um let's go Dave first. Dave, Ben Affleck on Daredevil. What do you think? He wouldn't be my first choice, but because at that time one of the rumors was that it was going to be Matt Damon, but he 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 hates this role and he's actually pretty good in it. He gets certain things about Matt Murdock. He did his research. So you see him folding bills in a certain way and labeling suits. He brought his A-game. This isn't a, a role or a performance that he should be ashamed of. Has he gone on record as to say that he doesn't like this role? Yeah. Oh, yeah. This is the role well, he regrets But is that because of fan reaction? I'm assuming because, I mean, if this is yeah. the one role he really regrets and he made Geely, it has to be. Yeah, but this is also a role that he really wanted, if I remember correctly, at the time. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think it's just because people give him so much flack, which is why I kind of sarcastically said that's the question. Like, it seems like everybody puts all the blame on anything they hate about this movie onto his shoulders, which I think is horribly unfair. Um, I don't think you should do that with any actor because it's not like it's the actor who makes the finished product. They're just the dancing monkey that you paid to say the lines, right? Mm-hmm. And even if they say the lines badly, you're letting that happen and you cast them and you put them up on the screen. So it's still your fault, whoever you is. Um, not there so much. But uh, that said, I don't think, like, I, I, I'm with you, Dave. I think, like, he wouldn't have been my first choice in terms of just how I picture what Matt Murdock looks like, per, you know. But uh, I think he did just fine. I don't know. I liked his rapport with Foggy. I liked his quick romance with Electra. I think he was really good at, uh, you know, the angst of, of turning into the monster that he was afraid he was becoming all that stuff. I don't know what was wrong with his performance worked for me. Yeah. I liked his performance. I liked the fact that when he was looking at early dailies, he realized he was not a convincing blind man. So he asked for opaque contact lenses and wore them when he had the sunglasses on or not. So when he was Matt Murdock, Ben Affleck was blind while he was filming it, which just that's a level of dedication not all actors will give you. Mm-hmm. I do think he was too young for the role as it was written. The As Indiana Jones said, it's not the years, it's the mileage. And when this starts, this is a, a mostly broken man who's been through the ringer. They've got the scars on him, but he's still very baby-faced. So I think, you know, Ben Affleck now when he turned out to be one of the better movie Batman today, he could do a, a great version of this daredevil. So I, I really like the choices that were made in here. I just think he was still too young to play the role as it was written for this particular piece. And that's not something he can control. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about the age. I mean, we're talking about early daredevil issues on the show and he's, you know, fresh out of law school. Um, and I'm sure so, you're going to get beat up a lot. You're going to get a lot of physical damage to your body in pretty short order doing what he's doing. Um, so I'm not saying you're wrong, just because you know, no, opinions aren't wrong. I just I didn't really think about his age being a, a strike against him on this. Um, 
But now I'm I thinking, really, like, now I'm thinking, uh, was there any indication as to how long he'd been Daredevil in this movie? I guess it could have been five minutes or 20 years, right? Right. There's no indication, but it's still, I mean, part of it might be because when you cast Ben Affleck, he was known as a bit of a heartthrob, still is. So just seeing the brutalization and the scars on his back and front, and yet aside from wounds that completely heal, his face is still perfect. Mm-hmm. It's mostly <laughs> when he's in court as Matt Murdock. It just strikes me as a little too baby-faced, and he didn't. Mm. It, it wasn't a consistent d- display of him, but that's more, like you were saying, that's not a fault, a strike against the actor, right? The one person in any movie who has the most influence on it is the director. Right. And in this case, the director is also the writer. Right. I mean, I, I, a good, a bad director can destroy a good script, but the best director in the world can't save a bad script. So I think the director and the writer would have to take the lion's share of the creative choices, but yeah, that's, so I, I even re- that's not always it. I don't really see the babyface thing, but that's okay. Um, it's the sort of thing where I like Ben Affleck as an actor, and I've seen him in, you know, I haven't seen him in everything. I've seen him in some of his, um, like you said, Mall Rats, where he's just playing a kid, and in Goodwill Hunting, he's just playing a kid. A kid who maybe should grow out of being a kid, but he's still a kid. Um and in this, I think he does a pretty good job coming away from that. And of course, I have deep, complex passions when it comes to Batman v Superman, which he's in most recently. Um, so I, I kind of like Ben Affleck a lot, actually. <laughs> um, I'm amused, and I'm sure I'm not the first person to make this reference. I'm amused that he has played both a man who dresses up as a bat and a man who has bat powers, but those mm-hmm. aren't the same superhero. Yeah, we're. I think on our on our Daredevil coverage, we talk about the similarities or not similarities between Daredevil and Batman, and uh, that everybody always likes to make. And so it doesn't help that the same guy has played both characters, and both in the same way too, like broken kind of versions of those characters struggling to find some sort of redemption in themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, largely so. because that's the way Frank Miller likes to write them. Yeah, <laughs> well, likes yeah, to break them. <laughs> well, and that's the comparison too. Yeah, both of those characters were heavily influenced by. Or, you know, have a fan base that loves Frank Miller's way of writing them. Yeah. Right. Or even uh, Denny O'Neill. He had that one issue of Silver Age Daredevil where Daredevil realized, hey, if I don't quit and fight in the dark, they don't know where I am. And it's much more effective. And he was pushing him in a darker direction. And Stan actually fired him partly through the issue because he wasn't happy with it. And then DC said, we like what you're doing. Come write Daredevil and hire him. So, and then Denny O'Neill come right, sorry, edit Daredevil. Batman. So come write Batman. Batman for a while. Yeah, come <laughs> yeah. write Batman. So DC hired him to write Batman, and that's when Batman became the Dark Knight because of Danny O'Neill's work on Daredevil. Interesting. Um, okay, so Ben Affleck, he's Daredevil. He is, like you said, a broken kind of version of the character. I feel like I don't. I'm not entirely sure why he's broken in this film, other than the fact that he's just kind of had a broken life. It's not like. It's not like he was a positive character who has recently gone through the ringer. It just seems like being Daredevil is really hard on his psychology. He is not a mentally healthy person because he is Daredevil. Is that how y'all read it? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, Let's get I mean, for this time. Okay, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I think that's a lot of it. And one of the things that they showed in the director's cut that didn't make the theatrical cut was, you know, just as he's trying to go to bed, he hears a murder. And that's what he hears all the time. He's hearing the pain and anguish that's present in the city. Some of that is 
got to be what he's choosing to focus on because you'd also hear all like the birthday parties and the happy thoughts. But that's kind of what's weighing on him because he's chosen that as his responsibility to fix. And he's I think he's weighed down by the fact that he can't fix everything. And that I think is one of the changes between the theatrical and director's cuts. When they're on the roof, he hears someone crying for help. In the theatrical cut, Electra asks him to stay and he does and ignores the cry for help. Whereas the director's cut, he leaves. And Mm -hmm. Mark Steven Johnson said like leaving was his original script. The studio producers asked for the the love scene and he's still torn on which is better and said it might have been the love scene, but he went back to his original for the director's cut, partly so he could see something different and partly because it ties into the larger plot line and the the Coolio plot line a little bit better. Right. I personally think that that's more indicative of the character journey, right? Before he's ready to give up on the world, now that Electra's in it and his personal world is getting brighter, he wants to bring some of that brightness to the rest of the world, so he acts on it. And rather than ignoring the cry for help, he goes to help. And that's something we see here. Because this Daredevil, I don't know if we want to get into it now, my biggest script-level complaint is that they lost what I thought was a pretty vital piece of Daredevil's origin. And one of the reasons that Daredevil is my favorite comic character. Which is what? uh, He's one of three Marvel characters I could think of who was a hero before he got his powers. Captain America, Daredevil, and then Bruce Banner as the Hulk all got their powers after making the choice to be a hero and save someone, at least. With Bruce, it was Rick Jones. You know, with... Steve Rogers, it's everyone fighting the Nazis. He was, you know, joining that fight. With Matt Murdock, he was saving the old man going across the street when he got hit with the radioactive material. Here, they compress the time on that origin, which makes sense because we only have so much time to tell it. But in doing so, it's a completely random accident and he was not a hero beforehand. It's something that he eventually chose to do, but it turned him even more like Batman here because it's like, yeah, he was training, but we saw no indication that he was trained to be a hero or a vigilante until after the death of his parent. And it's when he becomes an orphan that things move forward and it, it turns into the fight against crime with the version of his dad's robes, you know, Jack the Devil Murdoch as the boxer. He was wearing that at the time and he's still wearing it. So he's still chasing that unsolved murder of his father. So there's some closure to that in this story, but... I would like to see them play that up a bit more and, you know, maybe hang a lantern on him, as they say, because it just feels like a quest for vengeance. So they left him in a very interesting it didn't happen. Dave, what are your thoughts on that with the origin story getting changed? I hadn't really th- I, I felt like they they included so much. I, I forgot that they missed out that detail. Yeah, yeah I echo- say Stan Lee. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I echo Blaine's thoughts. I've been nodding as he's been saying that with him. I mean, Matt was a he was a Blake template to some extent. But a lot of nobility came out of him naturally. And I say blank template because most of the time he was defined by Jack Murdoch. By, you can't go pursue this, you're going to study. And some of that was removed from the movie. And also the, the, heroiz- the heroic act is a big part of that origin. So when the Netflix show started with that act, I pumped my fist. I was very happy. It's one of the biggest complaints you know, I also have for the either cut of the movie. Michael, do you have thoughts on that too? Well, I didn't. It didn't occur to me, so I guess I didn't. But now that you're talking about it, I, of course, have formulated some. Uh, no, not really. Other than maybe it made him a little more interesting dynamic with his dad, because now his dad's at least partially responsible for 
his accident. So now there's a little guilt there. In addition to him lying to his son in the first place and all that. But maybe that helps explain why he decided to, you know, knowingly, uh, willingly, essentially just die to show that it, to show his son that, you know, he doesn't give up or something because he had some guilt. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like they they shifted the attention completely to the relationship between his father and himself. And whenever I saw his father roughing up a guy in the alleyway, I was kind of like, I I don't think I like that. Because I feel like that's a level of failure that we didn't see in Jack in the original version of the origin. I think that's uh, a Frank Miller thing. It yeah, is. Yeah, I think that that's from, from later. Um, but, you know, using this accident that comes – Really, it's indirectly, but almost directly Jack's fault that this happens to his son. Um, and using that as a, as a place of bonding for them, a rebonding where they're able to work together. And now all of the study and, and you know, don't get in fights, and all that stuff, not only is able to come from less of a place of punitive instruction and more of a place of working together, be better people, but also he now has the powers to actually kind of get away with not doing that, which is kind of what we do as we get older. We start to learn when we can not do what our parents tell us and get away with it and be, and, you know, maybe or maybe not be smart about it, but still. Um, it's, it's kind of funny. Like dad's a liar and then he gets caught and then dad and Matt have a pact. We're going to never give up and we're going to go the straight and narrow. And then Matt starts being a liar. <laughs> Cause yeah, he's, I, out, I he's, out, really- he's out in the backyard doing backflips and kicking people and, and, you know, beating up boys with canes and stuff. Yeah, I once heard a really smart podcast refer to that as a sneaky lawyer's trick. Yeah. Yep, that would be me. <laughs> <laughs> you are welcome. Yeah. Yeah, but it's, I mean, while we're talking about that, I, one of the things I really liked about the origin is they did a really good job showing the bond between Matt and his father. Mm-hmm. I really liked the way they handled the relationship, especially after the accident when Jack has that guilt particularly in the director's cut when he comes in and recognizes that, yeah, his working for Fallon catalyzed this. So Matt has woken up blind. The world is completely different and unprecedented, right? He has no idea what's going on aside from starting to realize how sensitive his hearing is. He's got a little bit of that radar sense. And when his dad comes to see him, Jack breaks down. And when they hug, it feels like it's more Matt supporting Jack than vice versa. Yeah, you'd expect it to be the other way around. So that the young Matt here, he's got a lot of internal strength, and it just—I I do kind of wish that they'd connect the the dots better. Because as far as we could tell, when he lost his dad, he lost everything. Because before the death of his father, he had that strength. As an adult, when we first meet him, a lot of it is gone—not all of it, but a lot of it. Yeah, his dad's essentially like a drunken palooka who doesn't want Matt to be like him. So you imagine that. Matt takes care of him all the time because there's no mom in the picture. Except for about 30 seconds in the director's cut. Yeah. Well, yeah, because that was really a great contribution. Um, what yeah, do you guys she's think? Not, of, she's not a part of his story. No, but she also if she's not a part of his story, why put it in there just to compute, confuse people and make them scratch their head? Some of that stuff just seemed like a comic book lip service to me, and I don't think it really added anything. But yeah, I, like I got a it, smile from that scene. Yeah, see? Comic book lip service. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I smiled at it too, but I I went with someone who had never read yeah, a Daredevil so, comic. So then they're like, who's this nun? Yeah, she was like, what What was that about? Who is that? Right. Like, they never came back to that. What's going on? Exactly. And at that point, because it was the director's cut, I'd, already, I'd caught up enough on Daredevil that I'd read the full Miller run. Both of them, actually. Mm-hmm. And yeah, 
So it's, but that's one where I would agree that it doesn't belong in the final cut of the movie because that's all it is, right? If you're going to do it, it might be worth putting in as a post credit scene, which I don't know if we want to talk about it now or with Bullseye, but there's a bit of a Marvel landmark here. Well, while we're, while we're talking about his origin and Daredevil, I think like probably my least favorite part of the movie, and I'm not sure how to fix it, so I don't know if they did anything wrong, but I sort of just hate how like he gets his powers and magically becomes, you know, the greatest gymnast in the entire world, um, Bruce Lee guy. Like that, like one somehow connects to the other. But again, I don't know what to do differently. But it's like, okay, fine, you can hear really well, but how do you know how to do reverse back kick now? You know? Or a spinning cartwheel or handstands or whatever. I don't know. Like that's the part where I guess normally stick comes into play, which of course they're not going to get into. But uh, yeah, yeah, that just kind of jumped the the shark for me. They did talk about the advanced agility, but I also kind of had a wait a second moment. I can touch really well. In the air vertical kickflip thing. Yeah. It's like, cause, cause my touch, my sense of touch is so good that my body is strong enough to support my weight as I do handstands that people train six months to try and do. Well, it's like Tobey Maguire. He got bitten by a spider and suddenly he has abs. That <laughs> at least makes sense. Cause he has the proportional strength and speed of a spider. He physically transforms. Daredevil, <laughs> Daredevil is a guy being like being struck and blind. Doesn't mean you suddenly have super muscles, right? Well, he's no, just, but the, the biohazard just, clearly had more impact than just rendering him blind. It amplified his senses. It eliminated all body fat. And you saw what it, it did. did? Well, yeah. How else do you explain his, his suddenly perfect balance and massive athleticism? Well, that's he's what I'm have saying. Zero body fat to do that cold. So that's what I'm saying. So that, I just I don't know how they could fix that, but it just that that whole montage of suddenly I'm amazing really kind of takes me out of the film a little bit. That's a detriment. Yeah, if it, they had, if they had done it after like not with the kids who are bullying him in the alleyway because you don't have enough time lapse for that, but like just showing him doing some training and yeah. then like as an older Matt now he can do a really cool kick flip for some reason before he puts on the costume because that's at least that's how it worked in the comics he started training and mm-hmm. he was you know got himself really physically awesome um, but just like magically out of nowhere I'm out of the hospital and oh look now I can do kick flips. I did have a, a double take on that. It, it also but, just it takes away from earning it, which is an important thing for a hero to do. Yeah, if some, at least sometimes. if at least that young Matt, if he'd still won the alley fight, but not as flamboyantly, and then after the death of Jack Murdoch, you have a couple other actors playing younger versions of Matt, showing that yeah, he kept training through his teens. Mm-hmm. So the really extravagant stuff is the later one, and you. So you see, this isn't just like six months of training on the comeback trail. It's something that he started then, but just never stopped. And that's why he could do it now, but couldn't do it then. You ever, you guys ever wonder why nobody asks us for advice? It's really <laughs> I don't get it. I seriously don't get it. Because we right don't here. have the resumes to get in the room? I'm right here. We can help. All right. So, Dave, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. Okay. In 47 million words or less. Can you kind of give a recap of the original Electra saga? How does she get introduced? How does all uh, that kind of come about and play out? In the comics, and I can't remember the issue number, so forgive me, but it was Matt met her in college. Uh, she was the daughter of, well, what her dad did wasn't clearly defined, but some sort of ambassador role. Um, he was taken hostage one day after Matt and Electra had started a relationship. 
and unfortunately got killed as Matt tried to go in and save him. This drove Electra out to Stick, and she started training with the Chaste and Stick's group. Didn't make the cut, so she ended up turning to the Hand and turned into an assassin after being blessed by the Beast and his milk. The Beast is the demonic force that controls the Hand. I should also add, just for because I'm going to tear this up later in the movie, Electra was born as her mother died from gunshot wounds. That's okay. how the character started. Let's <laughs> start there. <laughs> so Ele- Electra's a damaged character. When we first meet her in the comics, when she first shows up on panel, is it like, hi, Matt, remember me? And we find out they have a backstory? No, she's killing somebody and he's trying to stop her. And that's when Matt has a flashback. So she's already in ninja assassin mode. Okay. Well, yeah. So, I mean, this movie, other than the part where it's not college, um, I mean, their romance has always been seemingly hot and heavy quick and short-lived and short-lived. And so I feel like they got that right in this film. I mean, the situation's different because, you know, yeah, not college, but there is a dad death. There is her being upset and breaking up with Matt and going for vengeance. Um, They do seem to, uh, and we could talk about the playground fight, ugh, sort of, but... It does serve the purpose of getting them together and liking each other very fast. There's not a lot of, you know, courtship in this movie, but you feel like they're meant to be at least for five minutes. Um, so I think they got that right because that's how it feels in the comic books all the time, too. Like they just, I don't know, they're Batman and Catwoman, I guess, kind of, you know, just they are attracted to each other, but they're also a danger to each other if they hang out too long together. The main impression I have of their friendship is from the Daredevil TV show. And I got a definite hint of toxic from mm-hmm. their relationship. And that was sort of the general impression I had anyway, is that they're, they're not good for one another. She's brings out the bad side in him and he probably has effects on her that are less than awesome. Um, I did not get the feeling of toxicity from this. In fact, I was a little bit put off because we first see Electra. She is not dangerous. There is not a single vibe that Jennifer Garner is putting out for the first, you know, 80% of the film that says I'm a dangerous person. She can take care of herself. She can fight. And there's the park scene that shows us that, but she's not a dangerous person, if that makes sense. Um, Whereas Electra, I feel like she should just exude this sense of do not F with me. I will kill you. By the time she has this level of training, absolutely. Yeah. Well, she was really mean about the honey. <laughs> she apologized. Oh, yeah. oh, though, yeah. though, we need to talk about Matt. We need to talk about Matt and social skills because, oh my gosh, he broke every single rule of how you're supposed to treat people whenever he meets Electra. Okay. Well, Matt is horrible with women. Okay. That's just kind of his <laughs> yeah. thing. He's always been horrible with women and horrible in a way that's detrimental to both the women and himself. He's a bad decision maker when it comes to women, which I think was captured perfectly in this film in a way. Like here he is, a blind guy with a secret identity doing triple cartwheels in a playground because he wants to flirt with a woman. You know, that's totally Matt. Matt would absolutely do that. So, yeah, yeah I, think it, I think it really rang part, true. That, that part's Matt, the part where after she said no, like five times, he grabbed her wrist to say, I'm not taking no for an answer. Mm. That part really doesn't sit well with me and I mean okay it it gives her all the calls she needs to to kick his ass which she does which is great but I don't think that that would have made her more open 
to a relationship with him. In this version, the kind of crazy and very broken Electra that we first meet in Daredevil 168, I looked it up Thank for you, you Dave. Uh, only comic appearance of Hugo Costas Nachios in continuity. But yeah, it, she when she is the crazy Electra that we, we meet, we meet later the way she was introduced in Daredevil, the man without fear, which is almost the way they introduced her in the ball scene here. They just didn't have the, the time and budget for it. Instead of coming out in the silver dress, she was supposed to be playing piano and then running through the fields and throwing clothes away and stuff like in that series. Yeah. It, it's not a consistent feel. I mean, I get where the playground scene comes from. It's pulled directly from the David Mack run and the playground scene in the David Mack run works well between Matt and his love interest. There it's not Electra, it's Echo. But one of the reasons it works so well is because they love each other in their civilian identities. He recognizes her because of his abilities. She does not recognize him. So when Matt's fighting his lover in the comics, she's trying to kill him because the Kingpin has raised her to believe that Matt murdered her father, which is a very different kind of dynamic than what we're getting here. Well, I but I think this playground scene works for what it was trying to do. A speedy, quick relationship attraction thing. Um, I just think the fight itself is horribly kind of choreographed. But then again, a lot of the fights in this movie are horribly choreographed. That's just the worst one in a way. Um, well, that one, they, they brought in a Hong Kong wire team who excel at their job yeah. and say, okay, we want this knockdown drag out fight that's going to blow everyone's minds. And it. the team said... Great, we need 27 days. And Fox Studios said, ha, you get five. Yeah. Well, it shows. Um, but in terms of plot, I think it's a cool idea, a way for them to both kind of expose who they really are and get into each other fast. It worked for me. Yeah, it, it can work on that level. I just wish that he hadn't heard no from her five times and ignored it oh. at that point. I wish she's romantic. I, I, you two don't understand romance. Jesus. <laughs> it's, two, it's two separate things. And I, and I was waiting to get to Dave's opinion on it too, but it's two separate things. The lead up to the fight and Matt's misbehavior there and the fight itself are two separate things. But Dave, what are your thoughts on the, on the playground scene? I, I It makes me cringe. It, it's very Power Rangers feeling. And exactly for the reason <laughs> Blaine said, it's you had five days to do a fight and you got something that was cheesy and, and kind of superficial. And also, like Blaine said, when he Matt grabs his wrist, I still cringe a little. I don't think I thought much of it at the time, except that it was a little out of place. But now it's just like, no, I wouldn't want if I if I had a, I, mean, I have a niece is if if somebody grabbed my niece like that, I would beat their ass. Right. See, yeah. I posted something on Facebook recently, kind of a joke about how some people are like, you know, this is an R-rated movie. Don't let it. Don't let your kids see it. And I kind of, I don't know in a really minor way that I thought I'd mention one day on Facebook that kind of annoys me. Cause I'm like, let me make the own decisions about what I show my kids. I stopped the movie when I was watching it with Keenan because I was like, okay, Keenan, you need to understand something about being a man here. This story does some things that I really don't like. Electra gives Matt every single indication that she's not interested. Mm -hmm. She doesn't look at him when he's talking to her. She blow, you know, she doesn't introduce herself or give her name. Whenever he introduces himself, she walks away. She tells him after he follows her that she specifically does not like being followed. Go away. And then he grabs her wrist. He lays like five different micro assaults on Electra and gets rewarded for it. 
Like the story rewards him with a romance with Electra after his effrontery. And that kind of storytelling, I think, is losing its place in our culture. Place that, you know, arguably should never have had in the first place. Um, but I think as culture is moving forward and a lot of the more su- a lot of the more subtle aspects of gender equality are are becoming a bigger part of the conversation. Um, I think mm-hmm. we're going to see less of this. The fight itself, I was watching and I was like, okay, I know that this fight is one of the reasons this movie gets ragged on. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I can see why. It's a little silly. But I also kind of smiled at it because it had some fun moments. Mm-hmm. I really liked, and I, I paused the movie and showed this to Keenan. I said, hey, Keenan, look at them whenever they jump on the teeter-totter. How yep. are they balancing? Who do you think weighs more, the big muscular man or the slender woman? He's like the big muscular man. And I was like, how do you think they're balancing? And he was able to figure out that they were different distances from the fulcrum. And it was just a really cool little moment because for like half a second, they are actually different distances from the fulcrum and able to balance. It was pretty neat. I thought the answer was going to be a stupid choreography, but I'm glad that there was some math involved instead. Yeah, they did that part well. I also do like early in the fight when he says, you're holding back. She says, yes. He says, don't. They do play that moment well. I like the grin when she realizes, hey, I really can open up with this guy and give it mm-hmm. all my God. So it's, like I said, if they had a different yeah. way to get to that fight, I would accept yeah. it as foreplay as it was intended. But it, everything that he was doing before that should not lead to foreplay. It should lead to restraining order. Yeah. <laughs> but she does respond positively for whatever reason, you know, because it's a movie and that's what she does. Um, and they have their fight and she ends up really liking him as a result. And she gives her name. Um, and so the Electra story from there, again, I was watching this the first time I was kind of put off by her storyline. Cause I was like, this is not the Electra. I know this is not, this is not the badass woman that, you know, is supposed to be a threat to Matt and a dangerous person. And later on in the film, whenever they're, you know, on the rooftop and he hears the crime, the part that the two different versions do differently in the theatrical cut of the film, she asks him to stay. And my thought was Electra should be saying, let's go stop that guy together. But she doesn't you know, hear she, anything. Oh, did she hear it in the well, theatrical? He never answers her when she says, "What do you? What's the matter?" They could no. have played a little bit differently. If he said I he know. was going to go, if he indicated that he was going to stop a problem, she should have wanted to stop it too. In my mind, I, I thought the same thing because it's like they both know that they kick butt, and obviously he has no particular secrets about telling her his amazing senses because he just got through talking about the rain and stuff. So why couldn't he have just said, "Hey, there's a mugging going on right now. You want to go help me kick some butt?" Instead of, I have to go and abandon you and make you wonder if I like you. Yeah, but that part, that part I'm okay with because, as you said, canonically speaking, Matt is a lousy boyfriend who is terrible at communication. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. (laughs) So that's what that boils down to. He takes too much responsibility on his own shoulders. That is classic Matt Murdock. So, yeah. They probably could have lived happily ever after if he had opened up and said, you know what? I'm this vigilante called Daredevil. I can hear this this person in trouble. I'm going to go help him. You want to come? Yeah. Like, it, it may have turned out extremely differently for both of them. Well, she wouldn't have assumed but, he killed her father, probably. Yeah, but... For starters. The, true, but being open and honest with women is not a Matt Murdock trait. And it's boring. <laughs> it's boring drama, too. 
Yeah, I mean, we hear that conversation from the Heather, whose last name I assume is Glenn, on the answering machine earlier in the film when he gets home, where she yeah. dumps him. And I love the line in the director's cut about the seeing eye dog who ran away. What does that tell you about how emotionally available <laughs> you are, Matt? I was going to ask y'all if Heather was somebody from the comics, if there was a Heather in, in Daredevil's love history in the comics. Oh, yes. Yes. Oh, Heather Glenn with, N with two, or Glenn with two N's. And after she and Daredevil broke up, she dated Iron Man for a while. And then she killed herself. Yeah. yeah. It's, well, it's, it was, she's it dating was the bad. wrong guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, wish I don't know if it's Iron Man. Every woman who dates Matt ends badly. Yeah. Well, well Tony's no Iron better Man at women. Would Maybe. No, it was just you. I was agreeing. <laughs> it was just Matt is unintentionally toxic because yeah, he's, that, he's, his focus isn't there. Yeah, <laughs> that was one of the things that. Okay, so when I was getting back into comics, was sort of I don't know if it was towards the end of the Bendis run. It was around Secret Invasion. I forget how everything lines up. Um, but I went back and reread Daredevil from Volume Two, Number One, and just started reading through. And for a while there, Daredevil was like the one comic that I had read. Like the longest current run of. Um, and it just surprised me that the whole relationship he has with um, the woman whose name I'm blinking on, they Milla. get married, right? Yeah. Mila. Yeah. yeah. That that ends so badly. I'm like, really? There's no redemption for this. This is, this is a shitty way for this relationship to end and you're not going to fix it. It was just, it was surprising to me. Yeah, that's standard fare. Make a run, by the way. Yeah, that's Matt. So okay, Um, Electra does eventually get dangerous. She gets fueled by her hatred of Daredevil and decides to put on the black leather. And Jennifer Garner's entire aspect changes, which kudos to her as an actress because, like I said, in the first parts of the film, she is bright, she is radiant, not a single hint of danger. When she's fighting, it's playful. But then there's a switch and she, the way she is presented facially and everything else is very different. And uh, and I I was like, okay, this is a little bit more like the Electra I was expecting at the beginning of the film. Mm -hmm. Um, Mike, and then we'll go around. What are your thoughts about how Electra plays out? Well, I've had a mad on crazy crush for Jennifer Garner since like Alias. So maybe I'm just... Not impartial here, but I liked her in the role overall. I kind of see what you're saying, though, about like the lack of sneaky danger in the beginning. Like you definitely don't get the vibe that she could kiss you as easily as slice your throat kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, in the, I mean, she's always been good at action. Again, alias. So she kind of just, you know, slipped right into that towards the end. And I thought the fights both with her and Daredevil and her and Bullseye were probably – Possibly the best fights in the movie, just in terms of intensity and, you know, anger and stuff. Um, it seemed less choreographed than the other fights. You know, it was just like all on her being mad and taking swings and getting her stab in. And then, of course, with Bullseye, that was a really, uh, uh, um, you know, brutal and horrible. She was good at being, um, you know, hurt and powerless, too, I guess, in the end as he kills her. So, yeah, I really liked it. I liked her transformation. I, I, I will admit that I've never seen her, uh, you know, solo film. So, so much for having a huge mad crush. But maybe I will now because I always forget I have to watch that still. I saw it once. I heard it's horrible. <laughs> I know. But still. It's yeah, I believe dr- in seeing things for yourself. Make yeah. your decision. 
It's directed by Rob Bowman, who who cut his teeth directing on the X-Files. He also directed Reign of Fire. He has a long history of being amazing with visuals. Hmm. And if he's given a strong script, he won't break it. If he's given a weak script, he won't necessarily fix it. And I think that's that's where I stand with Elektra. Hmm. There are sequences that have amazing cinematography, especially one sunset scene at the side of a beach. It just looks incredible. A lot of it looks amazing, but the script could have used another draft. Dave, what are your thoughts on how Elektra plays out? Overall, this character that's named Elektra, which isn't the comic book Elektra, once I separate those, I'm pretty content to some extent. Because Elektra's death at the hands of Bullseye in the comic was because she had a moment of weakness and decided not to kill Foggy. Likewise, here, she has a moment of weakness, decides not to kill Matt when she puts two and two together, which doesn't entirely make sense when you think about it, but we accept it. It's one of those story uh, conceits, and that puts her in a, a compromised emotional position, and that's what brings her down. So yeah, it played out. It, it's it's not a women in fridge moment, but it's damn close because Electra does have her own her own agency and her own subplot. Uh, Blaine, what about you? Yeah, I'm with Dave that she doesn't quite achieve the status of Electra that I would have expected from the comics. I mean, she never becomes one of the world's top assassins. Yeah, we see her train, and to Jennifer Garner's credit, she you can see little scars on her upper arms. She scarred herself training for this role, practicing with size at home. She was doing alias six days a week, and on the seventh day, she would spend five or six hours training with size to be convincing in this movie. So, like, she, she did the job well as far as the translation from the script to the screen went, but the script never quite captured it. I think because the story was almost too rushed. They were trying to get the entire Frank Miller run and the whole tragic ending <laughs> in the first film. Mm-hmm. It's kind of, it's going back to Ben Affleck again. It's like, I think she did a good job. It's just that maybe the script and a lot, of, especially in the beginning, some of her dialogue is super cheese ball, but uh, you know, I didn't get your name. I didn't give it, you know, that kind of stuff. Okay. We've never heard that before, but uh, it's like, that's not her fault again. And, and, you know, maybe she doesn't scream visually like a, uh, um, uh, uh, what is she supposed to be? Uh, uh, Greek assassin yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Maybe. But again, that's not her fault. They cast her. So I think she did the best she could do with, with what the plot was and what she was given to say and, you know, her actions and so forth. Yeah. And you know, I could even buy her as the assassin if I, sure. I don't think the script or director asked her to play that assassin. Right, right. So I, I don't think she was miscast. I just don't think they ever... They, it's like they started doing the Electra origin story, but they cut out the decades of assassin in between the death of her father and the confrontation with Bullseye and just skipped right to the end. Mm-hmm. And it's all the between stuff is what I could makes Electra who she is. didn't have her get killed by Bullseye here, I could see that she would go down that path. She could be so consumed by revenge that she and Matt have a falling out. She has no place to go, which she talks about in the film. She has no place to go now. She breaks um, up with him. I mean, right. not that they were dating, but, you know. Oh, yeah. And putting the umbrella yeah. over her head. That was good. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. And the, the, the director's cut with the funeral and everything had me in tears. Yeah. Not so much the original cut, but definitely with the director's cut. Um, Keenan predicted she was going to die. So I don't know what that says. But yeah. you've, you've raised him on the, the, the classic Greek myths and he recognized the name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. 
<laughs> no, it, it's funny though when your children's and I say your children because all of us here, not all of us here have kids. Um, whenever they start guessing the ending, not because of clues in the plot, but because they know plot archetypes and they know story tropes and they know how things tend to go. And it's just kind of funny to see young minds be like, oh, wait a second. I know where this is going. It's just it's just fun. Daredevil um, and Electra team up and kill Bullseye and then high five and credits. Right? <laughs> nah, that's not going to happen. And they pull the mask off of Kingpin and it's really old man Jenkins. <laughs> he was the haunted Hulk. amusement park. <laughs> the Kingpin has a mask of the Kingpin? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I can't handle this. Let's get out of here and tell the Sarge. It should have been funny if they pulled the mask off Michael Clark Duncan and saw John Rice Davies underneath. <laughs> oh. And a tiny percentage oh. of the audience would have gotten it, but it would have been yeah. funny for those of us who did. So is that a good segue to talk about our thoughts on the Kingpin? I think that's a good segue to talk about our thoughts on the Kingpin. Okay. Um, he's not Vincent D'Onofrio. No. D'Onofrio? Yeah. Yeah. I think he shows more relish in his position as the Kingpin. Definitely. Whereas D'Onofrio is all pathos and, and gravity. This guy is more like relish because he smiles a lot and takes a lot of joy in what he's doing and... But I think it's a perfectly valid interpretation. I love the man's look. And I love that he he gives you a visual understanding of how the kingpin is supposed to work. When the kingpin is not being drawn cartoonishly large, um, the idea of a, of a large man who looks like he would be fat, but is actually just really massively built. I like it. Mm-hmm. What, uh, what about Dave? Well, I think we'd start with, yeah, that's fine. Dave, what do you think? I, he, Michael Clark Duncan ate the scenery and I enjoyed every minute of it. He was very over the top. He wasn't the traditional Wilson Fisk, but I enjoyed the performance that I saw. Blaine? I thought it was absolutely perfect casting until I saw Vincent D'Onofrio in the role. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> he, he nailed it. And this is one, again, none of these characters ring quite true with what I expect from the comics, but, this is possibly the closest of any of them because the Kingpin is just, you know, the archetypal mobster. He's just built this criminal empire. He wants what he wants. You know, he's got enough people paid off. He, he's got the, the right amount of gloating, but also frustration. And the way he plays it, he won't show weakness in front of the person who's causing it. So, you know, in private, Daredevil was a problem for him and he was happy that Bullseye was going to take care of it. But when Daredevil shows up, he's like, yeah, you're nothing. Wish I could have fought you in your prime because I've got this. Like that, that to me is a really good kingpin. Yeah. Well, he, he was a, uh, a good at being large. That's for sure. Um, and I enjoyed when like, well, enjoyed, that sounds horrible. But I liked when, you know, he's killing his bodyguards or the fight in the end with Daredevil was very brutal, very vicious. And you really felt, you know, his physical power and his anger way down deep inside and stuff. But I think I'm with you on that. Well, I don't know. Like, he's not my kingpin in that sense where he definitely is enjoying himself more. I think Michael Clark Duncan in general naturally had kind of a twinkle in his eye and a, uh, you know, jovial heart. And I don't know if he's, like, the greatest actor in the world, so maybe he wasn't hiding that so well for me. Like, he's better when you cast him in a role that has that already. And instead here he's supposed to be, like, you know, the head of all evil. I don't know. I wasn't quite feeling that, unfortunately. He does bother me a little bit, but 
you know, it's fine. Yeah. I, you know, when he takes out that cane and beats that guy and has to wipe the, the top of the cane off, yeah. I'm immediately thinking of Amazing Spider-Man 50. Mm. Um, which, you know, is, you know, 75 years away for the podcast, but the first appearance of the Kingpin, he's he's a really violent guy who doesn't spend most of his time being violent, but can be violent. Um, I liked Wesley. Uh, I thought Wesley played um, early 2000s closet gay assistant very, very well. AKA it was Smithers. pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he had the frosted highlights and he was so delightful. Um, <laughs> Kingpin's like, you wouldn't understand this sort of thing. And they they say it's because of where you're from, but I kind of got the feeling it's like, you know, you, you like the softer side of life, and that's okay, Wesley. So that's what I have you around for. Let me beat this guy up. Um, anyways, I really liked him. And it was only when I was posting online about watching this show that I, people were like, you know, talking about him. And I was like, oh, I didn't realize we were supposed to not like it. Well, you don't have to do it. You can like or not like whatever you want. Don't listen to those Twitter people. Right. I hate when the internet tells me that I wasn't supposed to like something. I know. They love doing that, though. Um, well, yeah, if you listen to the internet, you think the earth is flat. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I would say the other one that really should be discussed is Bullseye. Well, actually, Bullseye mm. and Foggy should both. Oh, yeah, Foggy. Oh, you don't want to spend time talking about Karen? No. Well, they don't have time giving us Karen. So comic why? book yeah. lip service. <laughs> comic book lip service. Again, <laughs> that went nowhere and did nothing. Yeah. Well, it did in the director's cut. She had a little bit of something to do, but really, no. yeah. No, she didn't. Nothing. Well, she turned she a piece of paper that... upside down. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Because she was, Matt, she for some connection. reason, writes sixes upside down like nines. That was because he's because he's weird. That was foggy. He wrote it that way. But yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Matt dictated. She also gave Foggy a bad look for being horrible to her and demeaning, which I liked. But is it weird? In my head, the recording of Heather that he listens to in the morning, like, I'm pretty sure they've changed it. Because 16 years ago when I watched this, that was uh, that was Karen Page on that recording. Nope. And um, no. I know. I know they didn't really change it. But in my in my memory, that's what that was. Well, it's so when I saw. It's a combination of, of Heather. They broke up for a different reason. There was another character called Gloriana that actually mm-hmm. left a, that message almost verbatim. And then dated Foggy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In the greatest comic book story of all time. But anyway. It's a born again uh, reference, John. It's okay. So in our next segue, the, the, the woman who played the voice actor of, of Heather and who recorded that, in real life, she is the sister of Colin Farrell who played Bullseye. Ooh. So Bullseye, I think... And, you know, maybe I'll admit that I haven't read a lot of Bullseye necessarily, but I thought of all the characters in this movie, he was the most that just jumped off the comic book page to me. Um, I don't know. I really enjoyed him. I enjoyed all his scenes. I, I remember thinking the same thing when I first saw this movie. Like, I don't know. I think he's really entertaining. Other than his weird, man, missed opportunity when he, like, specifically asked for a superhero outfit and then they just give him, like, a bedazzled trench coat. That was kind of sad. But otherwise... Yeah, I really enjoyed his performance in this. Especially the the scene where they first meet is probably maybe one of my favorite scenes in the movie. The whole business with Electra's dad being killed and stuff like when Daredevil just jumps down and like <laughs> Bullseye kind of just nods like, "Okay." <laughs> and then they get into it and they become mortal enemies for the rest of the movie. That was awesome. What else do you think about Bullseye? 
I, I think it was interesting that they gave him the forehead scar rather than the costume. Mm-hmm. It just, it, it kind of exposes a level of crazy that's always been there in the character. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not sure it's quite the same flavor of crazy. This bullseye doesn't strike me as being quite as professional as the comic one. The comic guy enjoys killing, there's no question, but most of the times that he just really lets loose, he's not on the job. He's just killing for fun. When he's on the job, he's getting the job done, at least until Daredevil shows up and then things go haywire because they hate each other so much. Whereas here he had a little bit in him, so it wasn't the history with Daredevil that pushed him in that direction. But again, that's a script-level issue. I think Colin Farrell delivered on his performance with... You know, no complaints on my end about Farrell. Dave, what'd you think? I love it. I, I've always said Bullseye is a character that you don't have to give him a background. He doesn't need to be sympathetic. He's a killer, plain and simple. And Colin Farrell played him over the top. It was a blast to watch him. And I love he gets that turn at the end where he shows his hands and says, mercy, have mercy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because yeah. it's just like, oh, he knows he's screwed now. Yeah. And yeah. Bullseye was also part of a, an instrumental piece of superhero movie history in this film. In the let's get let's get to that in a minute. Um, so I liked him. Colin Farrell plays him a little manic, uh-huh. and he tends to obsess a little bit about his you know never misses thing. And you know I can understand that Hawkeye had a moment like that too. It's like if you're the guy who never misses, then you've got to make sure you never miss. Because as soon as you're no longer the guy who never misses, what have you got? Um, so he kind of takes that to a bit of an obsession level, and, and I can dig it. Um, I was amused whenever the bullet goes through his hands. That like they show him kneeling doing the mercy thing. He's like he's putting his arms out, mm-hmm. and then they cut before they fully extend into a into a crucifixion pose, <laughs> and then cut back to him as he's pulling his hands back in. So do you think it's Colin like, Farrell did that, and they just wanted to edit that out, maybe? Maybe. Maybe. It just kind of felt like that's what he did off camera, as he liked to the whole, what could be interpreted as a Jesus, you know, arms out thing. For sure. Certainly when you have holes in the palms of your hands. And he's at church. Gets, right, right. Um... Probably a wise choice. And the, he didn't kill the the Padre. So maybe no, he he's didn't. a little religious. Is Bullseye religious? I don't know. I'm just Comics saying that's the one guy in this film he didn't kill. <laughs> Evil people can be religious too. Mm-hmm. He's not though. He's 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 not. Okay. Um, I liked him. I like the forehead Bullseye. And that's one thing that I do remember getting some flack from uh-huh. some areas before. You know, because... Social media didn't really exist in 2003, 2004. Internet uh, socializing looked a little bit different back then. It was message chat boards. Rooms, yeah. Chat rooms mm-hmm. and message boards. Mm-hmm. And I mean, those kinds of things have been around a lot longer. I met my wife in an AOL chat room. Um, but yeah, so just the way the internet talked about this movie took a little bit of a different vehicle. But I remember that being a thing. But I like, I like it. It's one of those things that, you know, these days where so many characters looks get altered from the costume to keep the same idea, but do a different look. It feels like the exact same sort of thing they might do it nowadays. Instead of having him wear a mask that has a bullseye painted on it, Mm -hmm. just put it on his forehead. And I believe they carry that over into the comic at some point, don't they? Kevin Smith. Yeah. He was going to do a miniseries called the target that introduced it, but yeah, it's, it's part now, even though he didn't finish that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that he, I, I like the target too. I don't think he needed that per se, but I do feel like, that was one missed opportunity. He like specifically has that line 
and I want an outfit or something, or I want a costume, because he just saw Daredevil. And now he yeah. knows his reason for existence is to be the foe for Daredevil. Kind of like, you know, Joker's soul every time Batman shows up in the news, lights up. Um, yeah, it's like, oh, you could have gave him something. And they didn't really give him anything. What's yeah. his costume? He says, I yeah. want a freaking costume. And then he's just and got he a just different keeps on trench coat. exactly the same. Yeah, kind yeah. of. Is, is, is it a different coat? Because it's cut the exact same way. He's got a belt now with, like, the things in him. He already had that. Yeah, oh, he, he did? It? Passing yeah. through okay. the airport. Well, then That's, I don't know what, what he, he did. He then. pulled them out on, when he was doing the motorcycle surfing, which yeah, you're right. was a stuntman actually motorcycle surfing. Oh, okay, so then, yeah, what did they change? I don't know. They didn't give him a well, costume. Well, they changed the word. It, in yeah. a theatrical cut, they needed to, to keep it PG-13, so they redubbed it, so it's, I want a bloody costume. But if you read his lips, oh. Colin Farrell wasn't saying bloody when they filmed it. And, <laughs> well, and it's the still director's a bad word cut anyway. Still gets it, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, so but that it's, was, it's that's one my that, one complaint. Just give him something. Well, they planned to, but they didn't. I don't think it was uh, the budget. Even though they got more money than they expected. Mm. That was going to be the sequel, Daredevil Born Again, because they set it all up. Yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah there was going to be a... a Another Daredevil. That was the plan. But then... Sure. The director's cut didn't sell as well as they hoped, and Elektra did not perform, so they decided, yeah, people are not interested in this set of properties. Mm. Ignoring the fact that... They, they were looking at the fact that they planned to release Daredevil in January, but pushed it back to Valentine's Day to finish some special effects, whereas Elektra was the January release. And, yeah, January releases don't go over well, because no. people are still paying off the Christmas bills. Yep, it's a so. dead zone. And then, so I guess, like, the last character is Foggy, and I don't know, like, how hard that is, because, you know, of course, John Favreau as Foggy. No-brainer. That's easy. Why not? Mm-hmm. I had no problem with that. I enjoyed their friendship. You could tell, like, they've been hanging out forever just for little things like the whole mustard game and all that stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. No problems with that, unless you guys did. Keenan liked mm-hmm. it, and Keenan liked that it was um, Happy Hogan – from the ah, newer films. Yeah, right. Um, younger with slightly, but not a whole lot, more hair. Mm-hmm. Um, little thinner. Little thinner. Yeah. Uh, Blaine, what did you think of Foggy? I, I liked him. I liked it more when I found out how much of his dialogue he actually improvised. So a lot of the banter between Matt and Favreau was improvised by the two of them together. The Sanford and Son line was a Favreau improvisation. You know, what, did he, what did he call Electra? That was funny. I can't remember now. Sounds like a when he found out her uh, name, Electro. It was a dish, a Mexican dish, something like that. Mm-hmm. That made me laugh really good. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Of course, he's just you know he's there for the comic relief, and he nails it, of course, because he's good at that. Yeah, he he was there. Uh, I don't, Dave. Your your thoughts on him? I loved it. I I think I'm on record as loving the Matt Foggy bromance. One of my favorite relationships in the Daredevil spectrum. Closest Matt will ever have to a healthy relationship. And it plays uh-huh. here. Yeah. It plays perfectly yeah. here. Matt, uh, Foggy's trying to care for him and trying to be a friend, and Matt's pushing him away until the last scene, which I didn't catch until I, the director's commentary. Final scene in the diner. They're they're not on a work day. They're on a Saturday because they're in casual clothes. So that relationship is growing as Matt is changing. Mm. So it has a subtle arc to it, and I, I dig it. I, I think Favreau is fantastic in everything I've seen him in. He's a phenomenal director and a big part of Marvel history. Mm-hmm. Which, so, Blaine, that brings us to the uh, the end tag that you uh, were mentioning earlier. Um, yeah, unless – sorry, total brain fart. Do we want to talk about Joe Pantoliano as Ben Urich first? 
Oh, I guess Obin that's a Yurin. big character, huh? Yeah, I forgot about him. Oh, yeah, and, and it, that goes into one of the big differences between. Well, okay, so one of the big differences between the two films is that there's this whole other subplot involving um, a murder that Daredevil. He ignores it in the director's cut, and there's this really creepy view of where he can like visualize it in his head, and like chooses to lay down in the water anyway, and they end up investigating that murder, and um, the re the, wait, the interactions wait, wait, wait. between. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but is that what happened? Did someone talk about it first before he had that crazy vision? Because I was going to ask you guys about that. No, he heard it happening. Okay, he heard but, it happening. Okay, he, he went to bed anyway because he couldn't get there in time to save it. So he was. I guess I didn't understand that, and I just thought they were <laughs> suggesting he was clairvoyant, which I thought was really weird. But okay, that makes a lot more sense. Well, the interactions <laughs> between Matt and Yurik that are pursuant to all that are in different scenes mm-hmm. in the two films. Yeah, that's um, the biggest difference, really. Yeah, but I, I really, really liked Ben Yurik in this. I thought he played the. Um, tired but also really devoted to the truth and just tired of having to be the only one devoted to the truth kind of character uh i thought that played really well he's not as tired as the portrayal in the daredevil tv show he's also not as old and not Um, not as dead by the end of the movie right (laughs) yeah yeah spoilers i have opinions about that (laughs) no it's okay I I i have feelings about that um but he wasn't working for the daily bugle but that's my only strike against him. I really like Ben Yurik in this. Yeah, and that's not something that they had the choice to do because Daily Bugle rights were tied up at Columbia TriStar, and this was Fox. Don't come at me with your facts, Blaine. I want my, <laughs> I want my cigar chomping Hitler publisher yelling at Ben Yurik to do the stories he's told to do. Yeah. So there. Yeah, I get it, and it's I quite liked him in the role. The only complaint I have about any scene he's in is when he sets the double D on fire. It doesn't make sense for Matt to leave that behind, especially if he's denying the existence of Daredevil to Foggy. And it has always royally annoyed the physicist in me that when he lights the letters on fire and looks at them and we see them reflected in his glasses, the reflection is not reversed. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Did that happen in the director's cut, too? It must have blinked. Yeah, it, yeah. it's in both. Yeah. Okay. So. Yeah, Couldn't I get rid of that, that or the playground scene in either cut. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, yeah, there's that. And then... This this actually has two Marvel movie landmarks in it. One of which we is the one that we were talking about with Bullseye. In the theatrical cut, the scene that tells you that Bullseye survived the fall, aside from the fact that he grunts and blinks after he lands on the police car, is when he's in a full body cast and kills a fly mm-hmm. with just like a, a twitch of his fingers. Mm-hmm. In the theatrical cut, that's not part of the main film. That's a stinger. Stinger being the technical term for any scenes that take place during or after the credits. Right. This is the first time that happens in a superhero film. Mm-hmm. So much so that I didn't see it till I got it on DVD. Oh. Yeah. I don't know why, but my entire life I've waited till the end of credits for every movie I've ever gone to. Not even assuming anything's going to happen, but just because I paid for it and I want to see the whole thing. <laughs> and I'm yeah, weird. And it's really I've paying off for me now. I read but. them. <laughs> Yeah, that too. And I just like the music sometimes. So I'll just sit there and process the film I watched in an empty theater while everybody's waiting for me to leave. Also, it's a power play. But uh, yeah, it's yeah. really paying off these days because now you actually need to do that most of the time. Yeah, that's big in superhero movies for sure. It was Wayne's World where I first saw that. And then oh, Ferris yeah. Bueller at oh, home. Oh, yeah. 
had a similar thing. So those two films. And then there's, there was another movie I saw that was like some sort of comedy or parody film where some of the credits had like recipes and stuff. And then they like, it wasn't really credits all the way through. Mm. So was that one of the naked gun movies? Maybe three. Yeah. Three might have been. Yeah. Might have been. That sounds right. <laughs> That's I forgot about that. Or maybe it was a hot shots movie. Hot shots seems more likely to me. Cause I know I've seen that more times. Okay. But yeah, so yeah, watching through at least a good chunk of the credits until everybody else around me demands that we leave has been a thing for me for a lot of my life, too. Paying off, kids. Paying off. I yeah, usually have but, to pee by the end of the movie, so. Well, these days I have to sometimes in the middle. That really makes me sad. But anyway. Well, then you want to plan so ahead old. when you go to Avengers Endgame. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bring a large empty Slurpee cup. Is that what you mean? Yeah. <laughs> they, they have done four advanced screenings. It's over three hours, and in three of the advanced screenings nobody left the theater to use the bathroom. Oh, man. The movie is the kind of movie where you just don't want to. Well, it will please me to be the first. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's pretty cool that it's the uh, the first Marvel film or the first superhero film with a with a credit yeah, scene. That is a cool little bit of trivia. And it was a nice yeah. scene, too. Yeah, it was. It's also the first where... Uh, up to this point, they'd already started using that Marvel tag at the beginning with the comic pages flipping by. Mm-hmm. Prior to this, the sound was always the start of the film score. Right. This is the movie. Because of the nature of the film, they put so much time and effort thinking about the sound design. This is where they introduced the page flipping sound. Ah. Yeah, Spider-Man was definitely uh, the, the score as the yeah. thing flipped. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. I was actually surprised to see it here. I was like, wait a second. Because in my, again, my bad memory, I had always internalized that as starting with the Iron Man film. It's like, did they put this in later? That seems weird. I guess it goes back this far. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we've been talking about this film for the better part of an hour and a half. We've had a few critiques and things that we didn't think work well. So why do we think, A, that this film gets so panned? So universally panned. And B, is there really enough of a substantive difference between the two cuts that you should say, oh, the theatrical cut is really good. I'm sorry, the director's cut is really good. The theatrical cut is really bad. I mean, how do we feel about the general conversation surrounding this film? Or or B, addendum, do you have a preference and why? So um, let's do Blaine and then Dave will go around. Uh, so for this, starting with what Michael's question is, I have a definite preference for the director's cut, partly because of that subplot. With the subplot, with Coolio's character, with the investigation to find out that Wesley Owen Wilson was the leak, and how all of that plays out, it explains some of the plot holes we have in the theatrical cut. You have no idea why the police now know that Wilson Fisk is the kingpin and they're coming for him. So it feels like Daredevil was an annoyance but was not actually a part of bringing the kingpin down. Whereas with the director's cut, that was a side effect of reaching Wesley Owen Wilson and having the investigation that Matt and Foggy started turn him over to the police, and that's where that gets going. So without that piece, Daredevil's value to the fall of the kingpin is a very different value. I also find the director's cut does a much better job of establishing the relationships between young Matt and his father and between Matt and Ben Yurick. And even between Matt and Foggy. So, yeah, I I advocate for both. I enjoy both, but I definitely enjoy the director's cut more. 
And if you're only planning to watch one cut and have more than 100 minutes to spend on it, go for the director's cut. Uh, Dave, what do you think? Director's cut. It fleshes a lot out. It it makes the plot run smoother and make more sense. It's just if you, I, it's definitely my preferred cut, but I have nothing against the theatrical cut. What? Why do we think that the theatrical cut gets so reviled? Some of that, to me, I didn't see it when it first came out. I didn't hear a lot of the trash talking about this until after Gili came out, and it was just popular to trash Ben Affleck. Mm-hmm. And there was retroactive bashing on all the projects he was in. I agree. And that Geely was also part of the Jennifer Lopez relationship that was happening at that point for Ben Affleck. And it was just, yeah, it was, it was blowback and it seemed popular to do. I also think maybe, and I don't know, but since this is a Frank Miller production, not really, that was tongue in cheek, but you know what I'm saying? Like, well, he did those, play man with pen and head. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of, a lot of those comic booky fans probably went to this movie and thought we want more, more Frank Miller evil in it. And, you know, maybe though, maybe like John was saying, the whole lack of of lethalness out of Jennifer Garner was an issue. Um, I don't really get it otherwise, though, because honestly, to me, it's no worse or better than say like X Men, which came out around the same time, mm-hmm. and that right. and that got sequels. So, like to me, it's not like the greatest superhero movie of all time, but it's certainly decent enough that it could have at least had one or two sequels, in my opinion. Yeah, they were planning on it, but like I said, Elektra underperformed. Shall we say? So maybe that was the problem. Maybe just throwing those back to back and then electrotanking so bad they carried that they took it out on Daredevil too. I don't know. Yeah, and some of it was frankly the way they marketed Electra. It was all about look how gorgeous Jennifer Garner is, and yeah. that's about it. Like it, it yeah. could have been a stronger script, but I remember the ads for it in comics when Electra came out on home video. Oh yeah, it was just a full page shot of Electra. Mm-hmm. And the the dialogue was just buy the DVD and stare all you want, mm-hmm. and that's that's some of it. Like this, I don't know. Maybe some of the reason it's panned is because some of the choices that we see as homages to the comics don't work as well on the big screen. Like the actual death of Electra, the moment when Bullseye stabs her. This should be absolutely gut wrenching, and to get that heartbreak, it should be close to feel intimate. It was Chaplin who said. Uh, tragedy is seeing a woman break up with a man when you're close up on their faces. Comedy is seeing her break up with a man and slap him from the other side of the street. And here, Mark Stephen Johnson at times would try so hard to capture the comic book visuals that I think in that case it hurts it because he he mimicked the pose perfectly. But the pose has a huge impact in the comics filling a portrait orientation page. When you translate that into the widescreen landscape format, it puts more distance between the audience and the characters. And there's a few moments like that where the camera positioning that would work for those of us who are familiar with the source material who'd get that echo is putting more distance between the audience and the characters than it should for a mass audience in a movie. And and this is also, um, you know, for comic book fans who like comic books and theoretically like Daredevil going in. Um, and we're all going, what's wrong? When, you know, this is also 2003 before, you know, nerdity completely flipped and is now the huge in thing that it is. And so maybe like this movie would have fared better now than it did then because people just didn't necessarily flock to see superhero movies like they do now. Mm. Mm -hmm. So we have to think about like, what is your average person who knows nothing about a comic book think when they go to see this movie? And of course, I have no idea. We should have invited somebody like that. Well, no. At my time, I uh, at the time I was talking to an ex girlfriend, 
uh-huh. who wasn't initiating the comics, and she enjoyed it a lot. Okay. Yeah, I, I went with someone who loved it, but if it has been Affleck, she loves it. So mm. uh, that's not necessarily the best gauge. Or is the best gauge. Yeah. You never know. Um, I don't know. I Sometimes I wonder if a movie can have a few minor strikes against it. And since it's not perfect, it's horrible. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of the reasons why I don't like the the level of <sighs> the level of voice that Rotten Tomatoes has in our conversation about whether or not the films are quote unquote good or not is because mm-hmm. it's all based on binary voting. And if somebody's voting vi- voting binary, then if they have a few strikes against a film, so they're not like gung ho about it, they'll splat it. Right. Or you know. You might have a few people who are willing to get something in tomato, even if, you know, just because there are a few things they liked about it. But that's generally not how um, human psychology goes when judging stuff, when judging our entertainment. So you get all these, these you know, this co- uh, collation of reviews that are all based on, yeah, it wasn't perfect, so it's a splat. Or I wasn't blown away, so it's a splat. So Daredevil, I think, is a pretty solid film. With a few quibbles, um, things like the silliness of the playground scene, um, things like Colin Farrell being a little bit manic at times are the stuff that I was like, oh, okay. I can see someone having a problem with that. But the rest of the film, the vast, vast majority of this film, I really enjoyed. Is it a really good adaptation of the source material? It's probably a different conversation. Maybe, but, but also a film, unnecessary conversation, too, in my opinion. Right. And if we're talking about, like you were saying, Mike, about making this accessible for the wider market, um, you don't want necessarily something that is, you want to adapt the source material to make it more, you know, widely accessible. Um, I think I, I do. A, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think it's, it was definitely, like I said, as good as X-Men. And if they had gotten a sequel, the sequel might've been even better, just like X2, in my opinion, like they would have figured out where they went wrong in the first one and tweaked here and honed there and made an even better movie. But unfortunately that never went anywhere. Yeah. And you, you mentioned Rotten Tomatoes. So I just looked it up on Rotten Tomatoes here. 42%. Yeah. Um, right now it's showing 44%. Oh, for the, the critics, but the average rating is 5.2 out of 10. And that's one of my issues with Rotten Tomatoes. When they're doing the tomato meter based on critic reviews, they're counting how many reviewers gave the film above six out of 10. So if everyone gives it 8 out of 10, it'll have 100% fresh. If uh-huh. almost everyone gives it 10 out of 10, but like 5% of the population give it 1, it's not going to be 100% fresh. It's going to be 95. So uh. it it's a lot of people look at that score and don't interpret it the way it should be interpreted based on their algorithm. Because no one knows the algorithm. They just see the, the high score and they're like, yeah. Or they see a lack of a high score and they're like, rah. Yeah, I, so, yeah, I've personally found looking at Rotten Tomatoes, looking at IMDb, and looking at Letterboxd.com, my personal tastes align better with the Letterboxd.com uh, sort of audience or user base. Well, Dave, any uh, anything else that came into your mind while you're watching it this go around? I know you've probably seen these films. Um, what you watch them both like once a week, right? <laughs> Not quite that often, but I I've, I've seen them umpteen times. Um, one of the biggest things that continues to stand out is the treatment of how Matt's senses work specifically <gasps> as he's, you know, hitting uh, guardrails 
to get the vibrations, the way the rain works. And apparently the rain situation, that whole concept that it's the rooftop on the world, actually is something that blind people experience to some extent. I'm glad you brought that up. I was gonna I wanted to talk about that and then totally forgot. Um I think it would be very hard to visually explain something that's not visual, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think they did a really pretty good job of that. I'm pretty satisfied with it, how they did it. My only one minor quibble is I so epically wish that on that rooftop scene, when he is quote unquote looking at her, that he didn't turn his head to look at her and open his eyes. Because that makes it seem like he has seen something. And we know that he's not seeing anything. This is just an interpretation of what he's, you know, sensing in other ways. Mm-hmm. But it would have been, it would have driven that point home more, I think, if like he kept his eyes closed. Cause they were closed and it starts raining and he looks down and he opens his eyes and it cuts to her being all shimmery and pretty. And it's like, Oh, I bet some people watch this movie and think he's seen that. Yeah. You'd almost yeah. want him to cock his ear toward her instead, yeah, right? Yeah, or or just keep his eyes closed so there's just no mystery that he is not really seeing this. They are showing us as best they can what he is sensing in his way. But oh well. Other than that, I think they did a good job. I think that'd be a really it's a really hard thing to to explain. I mean, geez, Daredevil one and two alone that John and I have covered, they can't explain it yet. You know, it's horrible. <laughs> so yeah. Kudos to whoever came up with uh a visual version of that for this movie. Yeah, which really makes me wish the video game tie-in had happened. Yeah. That you were going to be able to switch back and forth between the, the two views. It was a huge hit when they demoed it at E3, and the company that was developing it ran into financial issues and ran out of money before it was finished, so it never came out. But We got something the, like that in, in Arkham, the Arkham games with the yeah. technical mode. But yeah, mm-hmm. And James Bond does it once in a while, too. Um, did Does the Netflix Daredevil visually represent his senses ever i can't think of a time when they do that world on fire yeah they show they show a few shots here and there uh, specifically of claire in season one it reminds me a lot of the matrix when neo was blinded yeah okay that sounds familiar now but they don't do it as often no it's mostly him just sniffing and hearing things and touching stuff yep uh blaine was there anything else you had in mind that you wanted to talk about while you were watching through this time um I, I think we hit the the key points. I'm just trying to remember if there was anything else. I, I I don't think there actually was, aside from... I mean, the only other thing I can think of for why it's not as well remembered now is because now we have the Netflix show to compare it to. But that's not a fair comparison, because who knows what this team would have come up with if they had 10 hours worth of footage to work with and the highest per-minute budget of any on-location shoot in the city of New York history. So... What about you, Mike? Any other thoughts you want to share? Uh, I think I've exhausted it. Just overall, um, I don't know if I said, but I, I think I guess I like the the uh, director's cut better, although I do feel it's a little long in the tooth. So maybe they could have director, director cut it a little bit. But, uh, you know, like Blaine said, it does kind of make the plot make a little more sense. But I do like the theatrical also. Actually, I, maybe it's just because I haven't seen the director that much. Like those new scenes kind of stand out and make it a little jarring, kind of, because you're just used to the other way. But... Either version's good. The only, yeah, and of course I haven't seen either one in years, so I just watched both of these within a couple of days of each other. The only place where I felt that maybe the new scene didn't flow as well was right toward the end, um, when you see stuff. Maybe it's when they go talk to Wesley in the bar, or maybe there's another Coolio scene or something. I don't know. It just feels a little bit jarring. 
But then you need that because like my, like uh, Blaine said earlier, that's the part that directly leads to the fact that, oh, yeah, now we can get the kingpin. Mm-hmm. So the whole Coolio subplot really leads us to that point. And you do you do benefit from that in the director's cut. Um, and they also get an innocent so, man set free. So, you know, kudos to the team of Nelson and Murdoch, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. That's right. kind of important. Um, I didn't really talk about my preference. Uh, I think both films are perfectly satisfactory. Mm-hmm. I think you can watch either cut and have a fully enjoyable experience. Um, I think it is interesting how different they are. Uh, and it's some of it's in subtle ways, but there are some major ways. When I was watching the director's cut, for like the first half of the film before you got to some of those more major differences... I kind of felt like it was, it has a similar relationship to the original cut as the ultimate cut of Batman v Superman has to its original cut. And that a lot of the additions and extensions of scenes just flesh out the story more and give you more time with the characters and more time seeing what they're doing. And it helps to flesh out the plot more because you're, you're filling in a few gaps here and there. Uh, now, obviously, Batman v Superman didn't do different versions of plot elements. It just added stuff in and fleshed things out. So it's not a direct parallel, but I feel like there's a pretty similar, similar relationship there. Um, On your feed is our current coverage of Daredevil. Number one, the episode of make ours. Marvel is out there to listen to as we're recording this. Mike and I have already recorded our discussion for Daredevil. Number two, which, spoilers, we did not enjoy nearly as much as Daredevil number one. Um, Understatement. I hope, hopefully you will enjoy our Daredevil number one discussion. And, you know, in a couple of months when we get to Daredevil number two, we'll just do it that when it comes. And then in 129 um, months, you'll get, or 129 more issues, you'll get to his first really good villain. His first yeah. really good villain? Oh, oh I will argue that, but on another another time. Well, first really good recurring villain. There were some great Mr. Fear stories that were partly great because that version of Mr. Fear did not survive the story. Okay, so just just to clarify, who is the one in one thirty that? Oh, one thirty one is the first appearance of Bullseye. Yep. Oh, okay. I you say you will see the, or something. No, you'll see Stiltman, Gladiator, and Kilgrave fairly soon. Good, good. But it's it's going to be. I I would say it's not until after Bullseye that any of those characters get stories that really show why they can be great villains. I just can't wait to get to Mike Murdoch. That's what I want. Yeah. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> I'm here for some Mike Murdoch. Um, all right, Blaine, what are you up to on the internet these days that you can talk about to a live public audience? Um, well, I've got Make Me Watch It, which is a monthly movie show that, uh, John and I had a a lengthy discussion about Batman v Superman, where John bared his soul to the world and I was all like, pee pee smelly. Uh, and then I've got a a bi-weekly X-Files show and, uh, Coming this fall, we're going to have 99 years, 100 films when Trey Hooks and I go through every winner of the Best Picture Academy Award from the start of the ceremony until, well, the, until the podcast ends at, after the 99th ceremony and the 100th winner coming up in a few years' time. And I'm also sort of fielding interest for a Mathematician of the Month podcast where I just give biographies of the people behind the math because I find that math has been dehumanized in classes these days. And there's great stories about people like, you know, Hedy Lamar and Emmy Nother and, you know, Galois and Euler that many, many people don't know. And that the inspiration for that actually came from 
apparently a competition in the Wilson household about their Facebook polls. Yeah, my wife and I got into a snit over what would be considered a common knowledge as far as biology, historical biologists go. But that's a that's a story for another time. Um, Dave, yep. where are you when you're not on the streets causing trouble? Uh, usually here at my – oh, um, twotruefreaks.com. I have three shows that I work there. One is Listen to the Prophets, a Deep Space Nine podcast in which we go through each and every episode of what's considered by some to be the most underrated Deep Space Nine uh, – pardon me, underrated Star Trek show. Most of the rest of us who know what's up know what's beloved for a reason. And Blaine will pop in with an email each and every episode, by the way. And hopefully we'll get Blaine on pretty soon. Um, I also do Dave's Daredevil podcast, so I'm in the subject matter of this particular episode. Uh, that is weekly, except when it's on summer hiatus. And then the Dave Cave Batman podcast, in which I go through my post-crisis reading project based on Batman. All right. I need to read more post-crisis Batman. I've been reading, like, Nightfall-era Batman, but, like early post-crisis i've not i never read that run so i should do that well, th- um go ahead oh this is just kind of mix and match so there's some retroactive stories that i'm putting in there that fit in the chronology gotcha gotcha well mike i know what you're up to i'm up to getting a podcast out every friday like clockwork for over a year and if i'm up to anything else that would not happen so that's what i'm up to this show yeah we're, we're still kind of gobsmacked that we've been doing this for a year now <laughs> it's pretty crazy yeah and haven't missed one we haven't missed a week. Nope. It's amazing. Okay. Um, so go listen to the other episode if you haven't already. And we'll be back in a month. Well, less than a month. Like two or three weeks with some Captain Marvel talk with Sarah. And oh. then um, we'll have to see what happens after that. I'll have to look at the calendar if we have time for more X-Men or if we have other movies coming out. But that's all for the future. Future John has to worry about that problem. Um, present day John wants you to go and listen to his other shows. All the Pouches and Image Comics Podcast is on Twitter at All the Pouches. Super Silly Sentai, which is a commentary podcast on those silly Japanese superheroes that predate the Power Rangers. My son and I are talking about every single episode of Himitsu Sentai Gorenja over at uh, on Twitter at Silly Sentai. Both of those shows can be found at my website, johnreadscomics.com. And um, this show can be found on Twitter as well, at MegarsMarvel. Um, I think that's everything. Is that everything? Is that enough for you listeners? There's so much to listen to. Well, many thanks. I, th- I feel like I always forget to do this, and I remember to do it this time. Many thanks to Dave and Blaine, yes, both of you, for yes. coming on and spending a couple hours talking about Daredevil. Thanks, um, guys. Thanks yeah. a lot. Thanks for having us. Oh, yes. Thank you for seeing your way to spend some time with us oh Uh we got through the whole show without a joke and i ruined it at the end only if that counts as a joke oh a joke about a joke about the yeah yeah yeah, you know what (laughs) it's a good thing you're in canada because i would come over there and 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 apologize to you (laughs) i just got that too (laughs) (laughs) all right Um, Until next time, everyone, thank you very much for listening. 